Acts 2. We return to our study in this book and begin a series on the makeup of revival in a list that Newsweek published of the five most important books to read according to author and radio personality Garrison Keillor. Guess which book ranked at the top of his list? The book of Acts. The book of Acts. He offered this concise and potent summation. He said, the flames lit on their little heads and bravely and dangerously went they onward. I love that. Onward indeed as the very first act of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost was a sermon by Peter. He preached to thousands of people and he was retracing the history of the promise concerning the Holy Spirit and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And history was being made right before their eyes as this audience was to take note. And take note they did as their hearts burned with conviction and repentance was chosen by thousands of them and thousands came to Christ. And the church was born then and had profound influence, not only then, but continued on for centuries. In fact, you know, historians refer to several revivals, even in our nation. There are three great spiritual revivals that have swept across our country. What is a revival? I'm not talking about contrived emotion. I'm not talking about the title of a special meeting. Some of you grew up probably in churches that had revival meetings. Remember those? What is the makeup or nature of a genuine revival? And is a true revival even possible today? Is that something that can take place today? And if revival were to come, is it something that is, that is contrived by us, that, that, that we have to produce, or is it something that just happens? Do we sit passively by? I like what James A. Smith in his book, Imagining the Kingdom, says, and what he points out is that you can't manufacture revival, but you're not passive about it either. He said this, I cannot choose to fall asleep. The best I can do is choose to put myself in a posture and rhythm that welcomes sleep. I lie down in bed on my left side with my knees drawn up. I close my eyes and breathe slowly, putting my plans out of my mind. But the power of my will or consciousness stops there. I want to go to sleep, and I've chosen to climb into bed. But in another sense, sleep is not something under my control or at my beckoned call. I call up the visitation of sleep by imitating the breathing and posture of a sleeper. There is a moment when sleep comes, settling on this imitation of itself, which I have been offering to it, and I succeed in becoming what I was trying to be. Sleep is a gift to be received, not a decision to be made. And yet it is a gift that requires a posture of reception, a kind of active welcome. I think it's the same with revival. We can't make God move in unique ways, but we can actively welcome him to do so. 
I think it would be a mistake to look at Acts 2 as just a piece of history only with no application for today. That would be a mistake. It would be a mistake to say that the way God works has ceased the way he worked then in Acts 2. What I'd like to do is welcome us to revive, have God revive our own hearts, to have God revive our church, whatever parts need reviving, and to have God revive our community. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Would you go before the Lord and ask him to speak to your heart right now? Father, we are desperately in need of a touch from your spirit in our lives. And even as I utter those words, it dawns on me that maybe we don't feel so desperate. We might feel we've kind of got it together. Things are rolling along, going good for us. And yet, Lord, all it takes is a brief moment to realize how utterly lost we are without your involvement in our lives, without your grace and forgiveness, without the power of your spirit, without you moving in and among us. Oh, Lord, we indeed do need you. And I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, that you would bring a, a practical use, uh, understanding of Acts 2 into their own lives and into our church. That we not try to explain it away into irrelevance for some time long ago, but that we would welcome your movement as you see fit. Do a work in our hearts. Bring revival. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When the Jew Jewish audience heard Peter connect the dots of the 
Old Testament prophecy to Jesus as the Messiah. He then demonstrated irrefutable eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. When he did all this, they realized that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah. And our passage says, as a result, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. The phrase means deeply troubled or literally stabbed in the heart. In fact, Homer used the same word to describe a horse stampede. Why were they so shaken and convicted by these words? Remember, the Jewish people had longed for God to bring them a Messiah. And the first century Jews longed for a Messiah that would deliver them from Rome. Because remember, they are living under Roman rule. They are not enjoying the promised land as God had promised. And Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted to deliver this kind of military, political, national freedom. And so they categorically rejected him. And Peter's message revealed to them that they killed the Messiah of God, the the, the one promised to them centuries ago. Their eyes were open to the wickedness of their attitude in their rejection of Jesus. A watertight case had been made against them And their conscience agreed with a guilty verdict. And those who were God's chosen people now found themselves opposed to God. And their conscience was so stricken, their guilt so great, they couldn't fend it off. There was no living in denial about this now. That was impossible. They were utterly at a loss as to what to do about their terrible situation. And the next question out of their mouth revealed the admission of their guilt. Brothers, what shall we do? They had been party to truly a, a horrible act in the crucifixion of Jesus. They had done something no other Jew wanted to be credited with, right? Cheering, conspiring, and some actively participating in the death of the Messiah. And now once they realize this, they are completely undone. And their question is begging, is there anything that we can do? Or must we just face the naked wrath of God. (laughs) That's true moral guilt. And by the way, moral guilt is not something our society embraces. You pay somebody $110 an hour to take the guilt away, to explain it away. Now, certainly there's such a thing as 
false guilt. Those of you who grew up in a, in a legalistic kind of atmosphere know what I'm talking about. But we're talking about here true moral guilt. Being gripped that you have broken the irrefutable laws of God. But that's the first step in acknowledging God's grace and mercy. Our guilt shouts to us that there's a great need. In 1937, a natural gas leak ignited in a London, Texas school, killing nearly 300 students and teachers. It was the deadliest school disaster in U.S. history. But one positive effect was that the government then regulated that natural gas companies had to have an odor in what is normally odorless natural gas. Then people could smell it when the gas was leaking, right? See, true moral guilt is like a, a valuable odor to warn us that we're in trouble. And the quicker that we address the guilt, the quicker we get to good spiritual health. The longer we wait to admit our guilt, the more contaminated becomes our spirit, our thinking, our perspectives, our behaviors. There's a toxicity to sin that poisons every part of us. That's why David in Psalm 32 talks about his his bones aching, his, his energy waxing away because he refused to admit the guilt of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. There is no five-second rule with sin. You know, when you drop food, you say, well, if I can get it in five seconds, it's not going to be contaminated. At least that's what we tell ourselves. You know that's scientifically false? Professor Donald Schaffner, I'm not making this up, a food microbiologist at Rutgers reported In a two-year study, no matter how fast you pick up food that falls on the floor, you will pick up bacteria with it. I'm still amazed that somebody spent two years studying the five-second rule. But that's what they did. The same, listen, holds true for our sin. My friends, we have to acknowledge our guilt and run to the Lamb of God who paid the penalty for our iniquity. And we do it as quickly as possible. It's obvious from our text that many in the crowd, as Peter spoke, understood this and took ownership of their sin. And my friends, there is a very real sense that you and I were also standing in that crowd that we too are responsible for the death of Christ because of the sin of humanity of which we are a part that he went to the cross and suffered as he did. Our sin put him there. The biblical record says this in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in Romans 4.25 says Christ was delivered up for our 
trespasses. The actor-director Mel Gibson has many complicated layers, but he seems to also be a person who is cognizant of his sins. And in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which you know he directed, there is actually one scene in which Gibson is in. You never see his face. All you see is his hand, and he's clutching a hammer that drives the nails into the hands of Jesus. He said that was the only place that he deserved to be in that movie. The question for all of us, when we are undone by our sin as brothers, what shall we do? Thankfully, there's verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's message 2,000 years ago, my friends, is just as applicable today. Repent. 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 It's a word that is not often used today, right? It means change your outlook, change your heart. Reverse the direction of your life. And in the case of the audience that Peter was speaking to, he wanted them to change their outlook on Jesus. They were to recognize the air in their thinking and embrace what was true. They rejected him based on faulty reasoning, on denial. And now they see him as the Savior who can forgive them of their sin. And they needed to repent. See, repentance is not a mere feeling. It's an alteration in our view, a movement of our will. It's a turning away from sin and subjecting ourselves to God and his moral law. Repentance is not the same thing as confession or honesty, though confession and honesty are good, and I would say they are precursors to repentance. Repentance is a decision to yield to the truth of God and obedience. You see, we can confess we have a problem with money, but yet do nothing to get out of debt, right? We can confess we have an anger problem, but never look under the hood in our hearts as to why it's there and do something about it. We can confess that there is a porn problem, but not get help, not take measures to confront it. And in these cases, then, confession is essentially useless. Repentance is the fruit of the work of God in our heart. In fact, I would say every act of obedience is a fruit of God's work in us. But our will, in the case of repentance, our will must agree with the conviction of sin. Our will has to agree with the truth of his word. Our will must say yes to obedience. 
That is repentance. You have not repented when you are still denying you have a problem. You have not repented when you are trying to explain away the truth of Scripture. You have not repented when you are making excuses to stay in your sin. To say something like, that's just the way I am, is the opposite of repentance. Peter doesn't just say repent, but he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Now, some folks extrapolate baptism here as a condition for salvation. I don't think that's what Paul is saying, and there are several reasons why. Number one, or not Peter, excuse me, that's not what Peter was saying. Peter doesn't make baptism a prerequisite for salvation elsewhere in his other sermons. In the home of Cornelius in Acts 10, people received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. Luke, the author of Acts, says that repentance, the fruit of faith, results in the remission of sin in Luke 24, 47 and in Acts 5, 31. Also, in the Greek, the verb repent and the pronoun your, as in your sins, are both plural, matching the verb with the pronoun. Baptized is singular, setting it apart from the rest of the sentence. So the immediate context, the grammar, the salvation message in the rest of Scripture and other sermons by Luke and Peter confirm that baptism is an act of obedience and not a prerequisite for salvation. But that still leaves us with the question, why is it that Peter so closely links repentance and baptism in this sermon? And for that, we have to look at a little of Jewish history. In the book of Leviticus, God instructs Jews to cleanse themselves from ritual impurities. These impurities would be contracted, for instance, by maybe touching a leper or touching a a corpse. And washing themselves uh, primarily fulfilled the legal requirements of ritual purity so that the Jews then could enter the temple and, and offer sacrifices. Later, as Gentiles expressed their desire to convert to Judaism, priests broadened the meaning of baptism and along with circumcision, performed baptism as a sign of a Gentile becoming a Jew. So baptism had a very powerful meaning of of turning away from one life and going into another. And of course, Jesus, just for purposes of kicking off his public ministry and by way of an example, had himself baptized and commanded baptism as well in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. So a a good religious Jew wouldn't stoop to baptism. That was for Gentiles when they converted. And so what Peter is calling for, understand this, is a public, radical testimony of conversion and lordship, not some kind of private, non-committal act of just admiration for Jesus. 
Water baptism became a kind of uniform for God's people. If these Jews had truly repented, then they would risk the embarrassment of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And listen, a refusal of baptism, I firmly believe this, a refusal of baptism reveals a lack of repentance for Christians today. It's a coming to Christ on our own terms and not his. What is striking is that this offer of forgiveness in this passage is open to everyone. Everyone. I mean, after having committed the most egregious of sins, killing the Messiah, the Son of God, Peter offers forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And it's then that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell them. And this indwelling of the Spirit was an answer to the beautiful promise given in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. It was the promise of the new covenant that God would now put his law within them. That was an indication that their sins are forgiven. How sweet are the promises of God, right? That would forgive us. That would forgive us of the, the most egregious of things. That thing that, that keeps dogging us. And all of us have some skeletons in our closet. We don't want to talk about. We're embarrassed if, if we even are reminded of it. And yet it's for this very reason that Christ died. Micah 7.19 says, He casts all our sins in the depths of the sea. And as somebody told me this morning, God doesn't want you to go fishing at that point and start dredging up the sin. You let it rest. You know that God has forgiven you. Listen, there are even today depths of the sea that have not been sounded Our sins are removed from God's judgment, never to be found again. What a wonderful thing. Can you imagine from this, their their souls being undone in one moment and in the next having the Holy Spirit indwell them, washing them with grace, understanding that God had forgiven them. Nothing brings revival more than conversions like that. When people realize the gravity of their sin and they repent and God washes them. The revival of Acts 2 came about because people responded positively to Peter's call of repentance. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter is announcing to the Jews that the promise of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins is available for them. It's available for all of their generations to come. 
And it's available for everyone who is far off. It's available for those who are not in the religious crowd. It's available for the Gentiles. It's available for the dogs, the dregs of society. It's available for everyone to take part. For the worst of us. You feel you've done too much for God to forgive? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What this tells us is that we don't have the entire sermon from Peter in Acts 2. According to verse 40, he spent further time making the case of Jesus as the Messiah. He bore witness, meaning that he was offering more first-hand authentication. See, talk to this guy right here. Look, Matthew over here was there. Talk to John. He was there. You guys trust John. And they just lined up all of these people who were there who could authenticate the resurrection, that this was indeed the Son of God. And then it says he continued to exhort them, meaning he was continuing to challenge and encourage them toward a response. And exhort also has the idea of actually answering objections. He understood what they were probably thinking. He may have even answered some questions. We don't know. But it was like Peter became an apologist to the messiahship of Jesus. And his audience was witnessing history and the fulfillment of the promised Holy Spirit. And Peter next calls for them to save themselves from this crooked generation. They were a part of a generation that witnessed the coming of the Messiah, and they rejected him. And Peter was calling them out to no longer be a part of that group, of that people. Crooked has the sense of being dishonest or even evasive. And it really begs the question for us today, What is it about the generation that we are in that is crooked, that invades our thinking, that kind of ruins our perspective? I would offer several items. First of all, the split between science and faith causes many Christians to opt for simply an evolutionary, naturalistic worldview, thinking that the rejection of God is pro-science And faith is anti-science. But my friends, that is ideologically driven and not science-driven. Then there's the hypocrisy of moral relativism that robs confidence from many believers in the truth of God's word. Then there's the political correctness of what I call a hyper-tolerance that distorts and deceives many that exclusive claims of truth, those cannot exist. And especially claims regarding Christianity. 
all of this kind of thinking is a part of being in a crooked generation, the way that Satan deceives other believers. My dear friends, let us affirm our allegiance to Jesus Christ and save ourselves from this crooked generation by saying, that's a lie, this is truth. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I can only assume that the 120 helped in baptizing 3,000 people. Otherwise, I don't know how Peter could have done that by himself. I can only assume. We don't know how they did it, but somehow they did it, and that would have been quite a sight, would it not have, to seen 3,000 baptized? You know, some people think it's unspiritual to talk about numbers. As Luke mentions, 3,000 were baptized and added to heaven's rolls. You know, it's easy to take pot shots at churches much bigger than ours, right? And say, they're just about numbers. You hear that church over there in Ozark has so many thousands. They're just about numbers. That's all they care about. And you go whining about the big churches. We need to stop it. Every one of those numbers represents a soul, a person who's come to Christ. We ought to cheer them on. We ought to thank God that God has raised up churches like that. Luke isn't using this number anyway to define success. He uses it to show the impact of the Spirit's work on this particular day. Every number represents a person. And churches are responsible to train and equip each person. So in that sense, every number is really important because we need to know whether we're doing the job because how you train 100 is different than how you would train 300 and is certainly different than how you train 3,000 or 10,000. We need to pray for those pastors of those large churches that they could do the job that God has given them instead of criticizing. But you have to know the numbers in order to do the job that God has called you to do. So to ignore the numbers is foolish. But to make numbers alone the sign of achievement, that's also short-sighted. So listen, how can we welcome Revival. Well, let's just go back to what we've read. Repent swiftly of our sin before a holy God. Honor him with immediate obedience, including baptism, and separate ourselves from that aspect of our culture that is crooked. So my question to you then is what is the Holy Spirit of God asking you to do? Asking you to give up. Asking you to change. Let's bow our heads.